Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. But tonight we have... Uh Ben Marcus with us, and we're completely delighted to have him with his newest novel, which is The Flame Alphabet. Um, and uh, it says that it invites the question, what, what is left of civilization when we lose the ability to communicate with those that we love? Which I love that. Um, it also has a great book trailer. If you haven't seen it, go online. Um, Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review and uh, named it a pick of the week. It said, they said, the flame alphabet invites the question, language kills in Marcus's audacious new work of fiction, a richly elusive look at a world transformed by a new form of illness. Biblical in its old Testament sense of wrath, Marcus's novel twists America's cotidian existence into something recognizable yet wholly alien to our experience. Um, ben is also the author of Notable American Women, The Father Costume, and The Age of Wire and String. He's the editor of the Anchor Book of New American Short Stories, and his stories have appeared in Harper's Magazine, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, McSweeney's, Tin House, and Conjunctions. Um, he's a recipient of the Whitting's Writers Award, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Fiction, and awards from Creative Capital Foundation and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He lives in New York City and Maine. Please welcome Ben Mark. Hi. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. I will read from uh, my new book, The Flame Alphabet. It's about, um, in the book, the speech of children is making people sick, uh, adults, and the narrator, Sam, and his wife. Claire are facing a kind of dilemma about whether or not to leave their teenage daughter behind. And uh, I read sort of from the late, early, middle, long part, uh, where they're kind of, they're, they're really feeling worse and um, their daughter is kind of <clears throat> realizing that her presence, her speech is killing them and she's starting to try to keep her distance a little bit. So I'll just read a sort, sort of a short reading and then I'm happy to take questions after if you have them. <coughs> also just totally un questions unrelated to the book too. I'm fine. I'd really like to address those. By early December we huddled at home speechless. If we spoke, it was through faces gripped in early rigor mortis. Our neighborhood had gone blank, killed down by winter. It was too cold even for the remaining children to do much hunting. I don't know how else to refer to their work, but sometimes they swarmed the block, flooding houses with speech, 
until the adults were repulsed to the woods. You'd see a neighbor with a rifle and you'd hear that rifle go off. The trees stood bloodless, barely holding on in the wind. We sat against the window and waited, spying out at the children when they roved through. The children, they should have been called something else. Barking toxic vocals through megaphones as they held hands in the street. I hoped they wouldn't turn and see us in the window, come to the door. I hoped they wouldn't walk up the lawn and push their megaphones against the glass. And always I hoped not to see our Esther in these crowds. But too often there she was in the pack, one of the tallest, bouncing in the winter nighttime fog, breathing into her hands to keep warm. She'd finally found a group of kids to run off with. If there was an escape to engineer, we failed to do so, even while some neighbors loaded cars, smuggling from town when they'd had enough. The quarantine hadn't been declared, but in our area they weren't letting children through checkpoints except by bus. Basic containment. If you wanted to leave, you left alone. Even so, bulky rugs were thrust into trunks, items that required two people to carry, usually wrapped in cloth, sometimes squirming of their own accord, a child's foot poking out. A clumsy game of hide-and-seek, children sprawled out in cargo carriers, disguised as something else, so parents could spend a few more minutes with what ailed them. Claire retired as my test subject. He's been uh, testing medicine antidotes on his wife and they haven't been working because he doesn't know anything about that. <clears throat> she stopped appearing in the kitchen for night treatments, declined the new smoke. When I served infused milk she fastened her mouth shut. If she accepted medicine from me she did so unwittingly asleep, whimpering when the needle went in. I couldn't blame her falling away like that, embracing the shroud of illness, but I did. I conducted nightly campaigns of blame and accusation silently in the monstrous internal speech that is only half sounded out, a kind of cave speech one reserves for private airing. In these broadsides, Claire spun on a low podium and absorbed every accusation. If I prepared a bowl of steamed grain and left it on the table for her, salted as she liked it, pooling in the black syrup, she passed her spoon through it, held up a specimen for study, and could not, just never could, finally slide it in her mouth. For Claire, I cut cubes of meatloaf, and at best she tucked one or two in her mouth where she could suck on them until they shriveled to husks. Claire no longer slept in her bed, and she seemed too listless even to maneuver to the crafts room, to the guest room, to anywhere she might be able to fall unconscious in private. I was always trying to offer her shield, a modesty curtain, so she could come undone, alone and unseen. She shouldn't have to collapse in hallways. If necessary, I helped her along, at least to a corner where I could erect a temporary blind. Once I found her asleep in the bathroom, one eye stuck open, leaking a speckled fluid. 
I crouched down and closed the eye, blotted it with my shirt. It opened again and she whispered at me, Hi there. I looked down at her and she blinked, perfectly alert. Claire must have thought she was smiling, but that was so far from a smile. With my fingers I tried to change the feeling to reshape her mouth. I couldn't have her looking at me like that. Her lips were cold and they would not stay where I arranged them. Her face had the weight of clay. Go back to sleep was all I could think to say and I draped a bath towel over her leaving her to rest on the cold tiles. At home I took charge of what remained of our dwindling domestic project. The blending of food into shakes, the cleaning of all of our gray traces. I formed a packing plan, a strategy with regard to the luggage, mapped a route to outskirt lodging. Our pajamas, robes, towels, dish rags, these I washed every day, closing myself in the laundry room where the hot engine of the machine drowned out noise and thought. Against the hum of the washer, I was for a little while nobody much, and this was how I preferred it. I left Esther's warm folded clothes in her bedroom. Often they went untouched. Or later, after Esther had plowed through the house before returning to her gang, I'd find the pile toppled onto the floor, a heap of black crumbs like someone's ashes dumped over it. Claire's robe went mostly unwashed because she didn't like to take it off. And if I ever found her half asleep and staring into nowhere from her resting place, she wouldn't respond when I asked if I could do any laundry for her. She'd just smack her lips to indicate thirst. It'd be nice to have fresh clothes, right? I could clean these and have them right back to you. I tugged at her robe and she pulled away from me, threw an arm over her face. Your robe will be nice and warm out of the dryer. We could get you covered in extra blankets in the meantime. It'll be nice to be clean. You'll feel better. I spoke to Claire as if she understood me, but she only stared. I spoke to her through a stiff, heavy face that seemed fitted on my head solely to block me from speaking. I sounded like a man underwater. As our tolerance departed for the speech of children, so too did our ability to speak. Language in or out, we heard, produced or received, a problem any which way. To keep Claire hydrated, I'd have to peel back her hospital mask, prop her upright, and press the sippy cup straw through the gluey seal of her lips. I lowered the mask. I'm sorry, I'm reading the grimmest part of the book. I really apologize. <clears throat> I lowered the mask when she was done, and flowery welts of orange juice soaked through the fabric. When it was time to clean her, I filled a bowl with warm water, settled it over a towel at her bedside. With a washcloth, I soaped her neck and face. She lifted her chin, gathered her hair out of the way. I squeezed little pools of water over her throat. I placed another towel under her feet, then lifted and washed each leg, rubbing as softly as I could, watching the little streaks of redness follow my cloth. Claire's legs rose too easily in my hands as though they'd been relieved of their bones. With the last of the water, I reached into Claire's robe and washed her stomach, the skin that once held her breasts. 
I peeled her from the bed so I could wash her back, pushing the washcloth under the robe, feeling each hollow between her ribs, a sponginess I did not want to explore. Then I settled her back down again, pulled up her covers, lifted the mask from her mouth so I could replace it with a clean one. She forced a smile, but a shadow had spread under her gums, a darkness inside her mouth. When I brought her soup, warmed the long bread she loved, or offered Claire some of the candies that usually she could never refuse, baby amber globes with a cube of salted caramel inside, at most she would roll over, heave, pull the quilt above her head. It was only when the front door swung open and Esther came in the house, sweating, crazed, in clothing I'd never seen, that Claire sat up, drawing on some last reserve of power. She always wanted to catch sight of Esther, to watch her from a doorway, so she followed her from room to room, keeping her distance, and Esther tolerated the stalking. You could see in her whole body the effort she made to endure this attention she loathed. Esther had changed. Her face was older, harder, filthy from her outings, but spectacularly beautiful. Of course, I must think this. I'm her father. Fathers do not easily succumb to assessments of ugliness where their children are concerned. Esther had never been a cute child but she'd grown threateningly stunning in the last few months. She let her mother watch from a safe perimeter, and she was considerate enough not to turn on her with speech, to stop and speak until Claire fell. Esther saw her mother in doorways, looked away, said nothing. It was her greatest kindness to us, that silence. I will always appreciate the restraint she showed in those last days. Esther's birthday fell on a Sunday. It was a happy birthday scene coming up. Claire was oblivious. It's not happy. <clears throat> wheezing, wheezing beneath the medicated linen I'd dipped for her. I realized what the day was late in the afternoon after crawling on the floor of the shower, the water softening my face. What was called Lebov's mark had grown in fast, a hardened lump under my tongue anchoring it down. The shower seemed to help. On the tiled floor I could tilt my face into the spray, let the heat loosen my throat. In the bathroom, I exercised my voice so that it would not flow from me in shapeless moans. Last year, when Esther turned 14, she'd wanted no party, just money and privacy. She used those words exactly, then said, why would you even ask me what I want if you have no intention of delivering on it? Delivering on it was her phrase to which Claire and I could only shrug, agree, say, okay, sure, we can give you that, honey. And then we wondered, how much? How much money? How much privacy does she want? Esther wanted us to promise that we'd not talk about the birthday, not mention her age, 
absolutely not remark on how she'd grown up or changed or stayed the same, not reference what she was supposedly like as a baby, since why would I want to know, she'd asked, what you think you used to think of me. She claimed such a detail was an obscure statistic, a piece of information that future corpses, her phrase, stored in their bodies as a charm. Esther reasoned that in any case we never felt fondly toward her at the time, that we loved her best in hindsight. It was true, our family suffered from issues of calibration. Even now, she said, it's happening right now, years from now, you will have distorted this moment, which is an awful moment, into something nice, and you'll badger me with that memory until I agree, which I'll only do to make you stop talking. You are professional distorters, incapable of simply seeing a situation for what it is. Years from now, the things we will do. In the end, Esther really did underestimate us. Memories of any kind for Esther were similarly off-limits. Shed the skin and burn it, apparently. Memories that asked Esther to picture herself doing something she no longer recalled, like skating in a rope chain of children when she was seven, down the traffic lines of an iced-over Wilderly Street. This was the week the elm fell to lightning and we built a snow fort circling the trunk or climbing a ladder stretched flat on the grass and pretending it was vertical so that each time she let go of it, she fake tumbled to the bottom. Such images were an attack. They caused physical pain, and why did we insist on hurting her? Why did it seem that we were instinctually driven to cause her pain? It was not right to hurt her on her birthday, especially on her birthday. What kinds of parents were we, after all? We'd grown so accustomed to hiding our feelings around Esther that it seemed easier to just not have those feelings in the first place. You people and your memories, she'd said through a sneer. Esther requested that her birthday not serve as an occasion for us to pretend that we were closer than we really were, since why should that random date, a date based on the most flawed and sentimental calendar, make us suddenly tell lies about how we really felt? Sweetie, I countered. See, like that, she said. There's a lie right there. You think that a generic endearment will somehow show how you feel toward me. Talk me out of how I actually feel. One word is going to do that, a word used for pets. How many people use that exact word to hide what they feel? It's like you're throwing up on me, actually. I feel like you just threw up on me. <laughs> But in the years before these revelations and rules, before she was overwhelmed by insights she felt compelled to share with us, we'd had birthday parties. We staved off tantrums and avalanches of greed, accommodated in our home the children who seemed to function, if barely, as Esther's friends. Along with these preteen colleagues, we welcomed skulking parents who would invariably let one of their babies, babies had not been invited, but there they were, there they always were, go off on a shelf-clearing campaign. Then, a parent would quietly retreat without the baby, 
to the off-limits master bathroom and take a toilet-wrecking shit that could never be flushed, only to emerge with the blissful look of someone whose own home is not being destroyed at this very moment, stepping half-apologetically, but really with relief, with genuinely visible relief and perhaps even a kind of lurid joy. This party is really fun over dumped cupcakes, grinding them further into the rug we should have pulled up before the party but did not. Because in the end, we always failed to imagine how savage these people could become. There you are, the parent would scold the baby as if it was the baby who had disappeared. The baby would crawl over, try to stand, hold up its arms in supplication to be carried, then topple over. Depending on the baby, they would either sob, laugh, or be gorgeously oblivious to all mortal proceedings one of those three behavioral paths. Come smell the shit I took, the parents never said. Instead, the one-sided rhetorical patronizing dialogue would commence. What did you do, huh? What did you do? The parent would interrogate the baby, picking it up and seeming to study it for evidence. A theater of mock blame the parent should have been directing to the mirror. <clears throat> Why not ask someone who can actually answer you, I wouldn't say to them. I'll tell you exactly what your baby did. Would you really like to know? Can you handle a conversation with a real live adult? I stood and stared at these people and they serially failed to read my mind. Instead, they would be locked in some kind of airborne, mouth-tickling activity with the baby, holding it aloft and to all appearances trying to eat it. A baby who, by now, so many years later, as a seven or eight-year-old, I'd guess, was probably shouting that same parent into a corner, turning the parent pale, speaking with so much force that the parent was husking, shelling, dying in a house somewhere probably not so far away. Had those parents built a locker beneath the stairs, as we did, cut in a peephole, lined the little room with pillows? Had they shielded themselves from the speech of their offspring, effaced their hearing, or damaged the little ones themselves, stopped the reeking language at its source? Were they pumping white noise from the old slab radio, and did it not fully hide the child's speech? Or perhaps the parents had already fled upstate if they were smart, if they knew how to shut down their attachment apparatus and see their children for what they really most essentially were, agents of such terrible mouth sounds that relation or not, one hoped never to see them again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. I'm happy to answer any questions if you have them. Stand here all night, or we don't have to do that. Yeah. What gave me the idea? Well. I guess I was thinking of language as very potent already. Something, even in this family, before anything bad happens, they're using speech to destroy each other. So 
it seemed like a way to make things worse, more dramatic, to literalize that, to think, okay, well, in a maybe even normal family, when we talk to each other, we can completely, you know, ruin each other. We can say a few things if we're close to somebody that will maybe, you know, change them forever, hurt them forever. And it's just, you know, little little speech sounds. So I think I wanted just to turn up the volume on it and see if what would happen. Well, what if that was literally true? It is already true um, in some figurative sense. And some families keep it all in. Um, you know, some families don't don't talk this way to each other. Maybe just think it. Some don't even think it, maybe. So I think I was taking something I was already observing and feeling and wondering what would happen if it was stronger. Yes? get a spoiler tonight. ending and they're in like Australia and yeah. it hasn't ended there yet. Australia is still okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some were hoarding and trying to hide and some are praying, right? There's different responses. Yeah. Nice wind up. Yes. Got it. Yeah, you're you're right. And I, I, I suppose it's mostly intentional. Somehow fixing it in time and calling it the future, I just found there, I just lost, I lost interest. It seemed to take some kind of charge out of it. It also has a lot of real place names and a couple invented ones, and it's not clear. It's sort of set somewhere outside of Rochester, but at one point my editor brought a map out and was like, so I, where are they? And, and uh, you know, <laughs> I just like wanted to point to my head because I, I think... On the other hand, so I like, I think I like the notion of a made up space, but I don't like the notion of it be seeming too made up. And I probably can't have it both ways, but I think I like making, you know, there seem to be these choices. It could be a parallel universe, or it could be in the future, or it could be in the past, and in some sense I, I'm looking for some different way to situate it. And I, I, I feel unsatisfied if I, if I actually say, 
Um, you know, I know that's probably not really a good answer, but I, I like pretending it's in a real place, but not so much where like I want all the street names to be correct. Uh, you know, I just that also seems somehow like a, some very sad for it to be too specifically locked into a place. So I think I'm probably undecided, and it's just showing up. <laughs> yeah. I could have maybe let people sort of fill in the place names themselves and the date so you could have it as you wanted. Yes, Al Brown. Oh. Former student. Uh, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but... Well, come back when you have, son. <laughs> <laughs> can you speak at all towards, like, maybe the trajectory of the things that you have written in terms of this being at least more accessible than yeah. the eight-line string of, I don't know, how you would, did you approach this differently than whether larger groups that you have done? Yeah, well, in some sense, when I finish a book, it's like this really, really bad marriage, and I've, I'm left with nothing, you know? Hatred and resentment, and also a sense of personal failure that I probably could have made that work. It was my selfishness that killed that relationship. And so <clears throat> then there's a sort of that, that long period of grief and, you know, recovery. And you're, you're wondering, you want to, you know, have another project. And in some sense, I think I, 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 I think in a corrective way, like all the things that I thought of as problems, I want to not commit those same mistakes or try something else. On the other hand, I've been writing for a while and I realized that I actually, I, you know, I go to that kind of like couples counseling and I say all the right things about moving on and I don't. I just, I'm writing the exact same thing. Like I feel like there will be a man in a hole and there will be a tube and there will be someone above that hole going like, Rah! and there will be a man going, ah, oh, that hurts me. Like that's what I write. <laughs> and I go to great lengths to pretend, no, no, it's, they're just having tea. <laughs> But then the, that scene ends with the man in a hole and getting shouted at. By, so I, I think, well, I have to outsmart that, right? If, if the, it's like the well I, I go to has just got this one idea in it. So then how do you get around it? Or, you know, because I think most people actually are kind of not even interested in that idea. So it's not like, well, I've had that one idea, but it's really great. It's like one idea and there's like five people who are like, oh, I fucking loved your idea. And everyone else is like, that is so stupid. So, you know, I think I deal with like my own revulsion, but then, and then I encounter a lot of revulsion out in, in the world. Not you great people, but, but uh, I, I then I try to realign and do something different with my limitations. And I had never written a whole book with one narrator. That was something. I just thought, I'm going to restrict myself. I think a lot about restrictions. And, you know, we probably used to talk about that in class, like closing stuff down, right? Not having a bunch of narrators, a bunch of um, shifting points of views and all of that. I just think if I make it very, very, very simple, which I've never done, maybe I'll yield a different story. And also, I really had never written anything with a lot of scenes and a lot of kind of time marching on. So it was an attempt to try something else, not to you know, sell out or, or try to, like, change. Um, that's, you know, so I think that's how, that's, how it, that's how it is. How's your work going? Yeah, you're doing that too? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Well, you, you'd be my one disciple. <laughs>
<laughs> I have to abuse you then, right? Because you know, I'll be jealous, you're more talented, you're younger. Yeah, you're going to take that idea and actually put some kind of contemporary shine on it. and All that labor I did will just get ignored and you'll be the one known for it. Yeah, I'll take my anger out on my kids. They'll just think I'm cranky, but it's really because you stole my idea. My life, my life is going to be great. <laughs> yes. Do you relate to it more as like a disaster book or an apocalypse book? Is it like, um, you know, it's like in contagion or something where it's like, sorry, it's a huge problem. Are we going to be able to rise above it, or is it like everything ending and come down to hell? <laughs> I like that last one. That's good. <laughs> That just seems like more of a party. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, I, I really resisted throughout the whole book, like getting any, going anywhere even outside the family. I found that I wanted this to be the family story, but I always felt pulled to actually explain how, you know, at one point I was like, what the fuck is going on in France? <laughs> so like, are they just fine? They're like, they're just hanging out in France and they can, t or, you know, I, and, and I, you know, I used to talk about this with my wife who's a writer, Heidi Julevitz, and just sort of say, so like, do I have to say, like, like, where's Luxembourg in this? Are they, you know, and, and it just seemed that the more I had to try to sketch that out, the, the less interesting it got. Um, you know, I was thinking a little bit about the road, McCarthy's The Road, which is pretty interesting in the way it refuses any explanation, and you have to use your imagination, but it's also sort of kind of clear, it's like a nuclear holocaust, it's just there's no backstory. None. And I think that was handled really, really well because I think there's some apocalyptic fiction that's all about the mechanics, right? Like this is how everything ended. And it seems like, you know, when I hear from some people who have read this, or, you know, someone said, well, now you have to write a prequel, you know, which, I, which is my dream. <laughs> you know, prequel dream. Um, but, you know, I would love to. I'll, I think I really would love to write something where an explanation wasn't needed. At the same time, I think as a writer you can't ignore that it's a really deep craving of people, and so you have to outsmart the need to have the explanation. You can't just say, fuck you and your need for information. Not you personally, but you have to somehow, you know, kill the need in the person. Kill the need in the reader. <laughs> um, so I totally didn't answer your question. It's interesting though, I like that you have a distinction between apocalyptic and, what was the other one? Disaster, Disaster. yeah. Are there others? Are those the two choices? <laughs> it just seemed like that was the likely. Yeah. Matter of scale? Well, you know, at one point, the, um, towards the end of the book, the narrator actually, another spoiler, you might want to cover your ears, sir. Uh, he actually addresses the reader. and. I've spent my life as a writer saying I will never address the reader. I will, I will be, a, I will hold out. I will not do it, and I did it. <clears throat> um, and he said, you know, he sort of refers to a future time as though you know someone actually has to come along and read this because you know, as people point out, how is he? He's writing a novel. <laughs> he's writing this down, but he can't use language. Like it does. It's, it's, it's a puzzler, <laughs> and so. Uh, uh, he, he says something like, you know, I picture you holding this aloft and trying not to be sick while reading it or like imagining that some solution has come along. And there is actually a solution that does come up for this language toxicity. 
but it's really not a, a particularly good one. It's got some moral issues. <laughs> it sort of comes at the cost of like like you know like some solutions do. So he's 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 thinking ahead to a possible future where this there's some kind of recovery. But I think the book probably makes it seem sort of like a there's a low probability. Anyway, yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, I wanted to possibly change the subject slightly by thanking you for writing an essay years ago where you trashed Jonathan Franzen for dissing Will. Who? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Which was, go ahead. As an avid reader of Thomas Pinchon and uh, sometime reader of William Gaddis, I, yeah. I had this terrible suspicion about Jonathan Franzen and I felt very vindicated by your essay that you wrote about how he was kind of going out of his way to criticize his peers after he had been psychologically traumatized by Oprah, apparently. That's, a, that's what I got out of it anyway. And I was just hoping that you might want to talk about that a little bit or comment on you, that. I think you should. I'll sell you five minutes of my podium time, because I want to try to break even on this trip. Um, well, Is that all done with now? You've forgotten all about it? <clears throat> no. You know, I, I will make a distinction. I was not talking about his fiction in that essay. And I wrote a much longer essay that got edited by Harper's. They were very interested in, you know, the essay had, you know, it had an attack mode, but it also had like a self-grooming mode. It had an informational mode. Uh, I, I did a lot of research about what happens in the brain when we read. Uh, there's also a pretty fascinating thing called the Lexile Index that rates the supposed difficulty of a lot of books uh, in order to determine the grade level for books. And so I put in a lot of texts and I, I talked a lot about that and I was interested in why some of the books I love, you know, when I show them to other people, they just would look like a foreign language. People were like, this fucking sucks. I, it's awful. And I would think, oh no, it's like the best thing I've ever seen in my life. And um, so I, I wrote about a lot of things, but they, you know, and I, I don't want to just blame Harper's, but it was their fault. Uh, they, they, were interest, they were interested really in, in, in the attack mode that all the self-grooming was taken out. And I don't know if you've ever read an essay that's all self-grooming, but can you even picture it? So you'll, you'll never get to see that. I know. No, see, that's, they would have blown your mind. Like a new way to write an essay. So, I, you know, so... <clears throat> He had made a series of critical statements about sort of the harm that was being caused by difficult fiction and how it sent the wrong message about literature to people. You know, he's talking about like the people who read one book a year don't want to be told that Ulysses is a great book because then they might read Ulysses and get the idea that all literature is like that. And so I felt that he was in a very good position with his fan base to have, there, there would be no reason he would feel threatened if I came out and really disagreed with his positions. And Wasn't that the criticism that was originally labeled kind of at him as well? So it was almost yeah. Well, his own his own sort of trajectory as a writer was hard to ignore in that way. It's but like the Stockholm syndrome on his part is what it felt. <laughs> you really should write an essay then about this. Um, so many things are compared to the Stockholm syndrome now. It's right, like you guys in the audience, it's like the Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> but even for me, it's like the Stockholm syndrome too. Um, 
You gotta feel like the original people who started the Stockholm Syndrome, like do they get royalties? Uh, you know, I don't think about it a lot. I found that as an essay writer, I, I just, I wrote too personally for people. It seemed to really not, even the people I think I wanted to seem like I was defending, they seemed unhappy. They seemed like, you know, I hadn't described so-called experimental writing properly. And so I, f I just felt that I didn't really want to play. I didn't really care. I, you know, I, I thought I, I, was, I was fairly naive about what it would be to write that essay. And, and I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think I could even hurt him because it seemed like he's, he's a megalithic figure with, who shouldn't feel threatened if that's what he believes and we happen to disagree. So I just, I don't know, I, I, I did kind of go into my hole after that. I just thought, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't calibrate the essay in a way that seemed to like actually cause more conversation, which is all I really wanted to do. It did here. And did it? Now you know there's one person who was vindicated because of it. I have heard of you, <laughs> sir. Okay, well, thanks. I appreciate it. Okay, one more question. Yes. Um, you have a, like, a, an interesting way of refreshing basic words. And um, even mouth sounds of speech. Yeah. Um, and earlier in Agent Wire, Agent Wire and Strength, words like sun and wind and I don't know if schematic is the right way, but when you would use those words, would you, was it more my feel, or did you have almost like an uh, alternate definition path or string or? Yeah, I, I think I see what you're asking. I, you know, a, a lot of it was intuitive. I think I didn't have a system, you know, because I couldn't just do it at will. And sometimes it just sounded too kind of obtuse and didn't really work. I think when I was first writing, I, I, you know, I thought about what I, I, I tried to write. I think I was reading people like Ann Beattie and Jane Ann Phillips and Carver and Richard Ford and Andre Debuse and you know, writers I really like, but I think I sort of tried to ape that and I was just not any good at it. And then, you know, I sort of thought I should just try to write in some new way. But, you know, I, I didn't really know, even know why. But what that meant was not taking words for granted, just in a really basic way. So, like, not even taking their definitions for granted. And I had this idea that I, I just couldn't really write a basic sentence without sort of playing with it. And, you know, it's, it's sort of nothing fancier than that. I, I think in a lot of ways that urge has left me or the, ta the ability to do it has left me and I, I take great relief now in simple sentences like and then he got in his car and drove away. You know, because I would never have done that before. I would have spent weeks really, really just so, you know, anxious about how to take that apart and rebuild it and, and you know, I, I'm sort of glad I did that but also glad now that I, I can kind of turn that urge off sometimes just to see what, what happens. So I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I felt like it just got, it sort of had me stuck after a while. What a sad note to end on. <laughs> if, if, if there's one more, there might not be. Yeah. Perky. All right. We still date too. <laughs> On the side. <laughs>
Are you dating her? No, you're professor. Okay, go ahead. You're very strict. I, you know, honestly, I feel so lucky. I've learned so much from her. She's, to me, a genius. She has so much ability. She's got a very strange sense of humor. She's willing to reinvent herself with her books. You know, it's funny that, because when we first met, it was very easy to, like, there was this way that I didn't even feel like I was a writer like that, and what I was writing, we were so different, and we were sort of, people now sort of joke that, like, our books are kind of getting more and more in common and you know she she does influence me and she's got really interesting insights and she's she can be a really harsh reader it's it, in some sense it's hard you know like when i met her she just been, gotten this huge publishing deal and was you know in some sense like instantly launched and it was weird to suddenly be in that like to meet people like making big advances and all that because I was in a very tiny little small press world and there was there's some strange things socially about it but they all kind of leveled out and you know I love people though who issue cautions about who to date I think those people should all get together and you know write these rules up and and enforce them because I know when I'm looking for someone to date I really do just focus on their profession I actually don't pay any attention to sexual attraction. Who cares? It's ridiculous. And you can, you can fake that. I just really want to know that they don't do what I do. And then it's on. It's really just on. Yeah, you know, it's, is it a bad idea in theory? Maybe, but, you know, I don't know. Um, I might quit writing, too, and then we won't. <laughs> Thank you all for listening, I, I suppose. Uh, yeah. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.